pastor here at Carson Valley Bible Church, in case you're new or visiting with us this morning. And it is my privilege to be able to stand up here in front of you and open the Bible again. Now, if you have a Bible, or there's a Black Pew Bible around you, I would encourage you to go ahead and grab that and open it up to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is where we're going to be at this morning. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, which will be on page 980 if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles around the room. Now, as a reminder, if you don't have uh, your own Bible or you don't have uh, the English version that we use here, uh, you can take one of those Black Pew Bibles home with you, put your name in it, make it your own. If you have like 30 of those at home, which I feel like I do sometimes, uh, don't take another one, okay? Maybe bring some back, actually. Now, this week, we find ourselves in week four of our sermon series where we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity is this historical, orthodox doctrine that teaches that there's only one God. But yet that one God has eternally existed as three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit which I know for many of you has been a little bit of a newer study. Even if you've been a Christian for a while, you guys have told me that you've never actually looked at the Trinity so pointedly before. That maybe you had some kind of understanding of the doctrine at some level, maybe you were taught it growing up, or you taught it in the years since you've been a Christian, but yet you've always struggled You've always struggled to go like, but how does that actually make a difference in my day-to-day Christianity? What does it make a difference if I understand that God is triune? Maybe you've never even thought about these, these categories of theology, and, and this falls into the category of what's known as theology proper, which is the study of who God is and his very essence and his very nature. Maybe you've thought that this should just be left, right, in those those academic discussions, right? Those, those high theologians who like to, to parse out very distinct things, and it should just be left and right in their individual lofty towers. But what about me? What, what about what my day-to-day? What, what about me? I'm just trying to raise my family, right? Provide for them. Encourage. Be a good employee. Maybe a good boss, a good mom, a good dad, grandma, grandpa. Well, over these last few weeks, I've been pleading with you. Because what I'm attempting, and this is is including myself, by the way. What we are trying to do in in taking this look at the Trinity is not just understand the doctrine, right, in in a mental capacity, in an academic way, even though that's important. But we actually want to delight in the Trinity as the people of God. We actually want to enjoy the God in whom we're here to worship. So we've been trying to focus in on that. And I don't know about you, but I want to know the God in whom I'm worshiping. I want to know who he is. I don't want to be blind to this God who has changed everything about my life. I want to, to the best of my ability, to know him as he has revealed himself in this word. Right, so over the last few weeks, we've been just taking our time, looking at, at some of these high levels of the Trinity, of who he is, who he has always been. 
so we could understand the God who is, and we could love him accordingly. If you want a, a fancy term for this, it's theology always leads to doxology. It means your study of God should always lead to your praise of God. And that's what we're trying to do every single morning, by learning about him. Listen, I don't want to be a grumpy Christian, right? I don't want to be an Eeyore in the Christian world or the Christian faith, where you're just kind of just down all the time. I don't want to be, look, listen, theology should not lead you to be stiff and grumpy as a person. There's plenty of things in this world that lead to that, because we live in a fallen world. Theology should not be one of those things, right? It should be joyful. Actually, the more that you learn about God, the more that you actually love him, and you love what he loves, right? You love his church, you love his people, you love his creation. And so as we study the doctrine of the Trinity, it should just delight our souls, because we're delighting in the God who actually gave us the ability to have joy. And so even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, one is we're glad you're here. We really are. And we hope that this is a safe place for you to investigate who Jesus is, to investigate Christianity. But you should know this on, on, at the very beginning. The reason that we gather on Sundays is not so we could just have right, a spiritual pep talk of how to improve our lives, right? We're not primarily here to have, right, five steps to a better marriage or ten steps to a more stress-free life, even though those can be good things, right? I want, I want to always improve my marriage. I also always want to see what's causing stress in my life. But that's not the primary reason we're here. The primary reason we're here is how we even dis- describe it at the very beginning of our service. What's, how do we begin our service? A call to what? Worship, yeah. That's what we're doing here. We're calling ourselves to worship. To worship not ourselves, not our marriages, not our lives, but him who is worthy of worship. All right, so we're going to be continuing to look at what's known as the economic trinity. The economic trinity. And, and what that means, it's just a fancy way of saying, how do the, those three distinct persons of the Godhead actually work in creation? And specifically, how does the Trinity work in the salvation of sinners like you and I? So there's the economy of the Father, the economy of the Son, the economy of the Holy Spirit, of how do they work inside of creation? But remember, even though we're highlighting one particular person, the Trinity has unity. So no particular work of the Father or the Son or the Spirit is divisible from the rest of the Trinity. It's really important to to make sure that we get right. That we can't say that God the Son is the only one who does this or only wants to do this and the Father or the Spirit don't. Okay, in order for us to not get too askew, like many, honestly, many theologians have when they actually start looking at the Trinity, is we want to stay within our, the runway of orthodoxy and say we believe in the inseparable operations of God. God only works together, not separate from each other. Though we are going to be highlighting the work of God the Son today. God the Son. Now, before I actually read that Philippians passage, then let me go ahead and pray for us. 
I want to pray for you, and I ask that you would just pray for me, and we'll, we'll read the Bible together. Well, Father, before we actually look at your word and begin to, just to unpack it for the next 30 minutes or so, God, I ask that you would reveal yourself, that you would use your word as the very means in which you have designed for our hearts to be awakened to the reality of who you are and what you've done. And God, we know that that's a work of you. So Lord, I, I ask that you would, every man, woman, child in this room, that God, that you would just stir in their hearts a better understanding of who you are. Maybe, maybe for the first time, just awaken their hearts to exactly who you are. And that they would be able just to respond accordingly. Father, I also ask that you be with our kiddos in the room next door. As even those, those youngest hearts and those youngest minds are, are learning these, these big ideas about who God is and what, what, what God the Son has done for them and why that matters. God, will you just give even those little minds just grant them the ability to see and understand. And also for those teachers, that they would be able to teach just winsomely to those hearts and minds. But Lord, we ask for all of us that when we walk out of here today, Lord, that we would love you more than when we first walked in. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It should be on the screen as well. But let me go ahead and just read through verse 11. The Apostle Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed, and may he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. All right, well, if you have been here for any length of time, you have probably picked up, I hope you have at least, you've probably picked up that we make a really big deal about Jesus Christ. And that's very purposeful, right? That's, That's very intentional, But have you ever wondered, in regards to the Trinity, why do we highlight the person and work of the second person of the Trinity so much? Why don't we talk about maybe God the Father so much, or God the Spirit? Why does it seem like we highlight or emphasize the work of God the Son so much, Jesus Christ? Well, the reason that we do that is one is we believe that's what the Bible does. And we're convinced that the reason that the Bible does that is because that is the central message of God. Is that if you understand Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, 
you actually, and you, and you understand who, like, who he is and what he's done, you actually will get the triune God. If you understand Jesus, you will understand the Trinity. Here's what I mean. If you get Jesus right, you will understand God the Father. If you get Jesus right, it's actually evidence that the role of the Holy Spirit, who is to highlight the Son, is being accomplished. Because if you have seen Jesus, you have seen who, according to Jesus? The Father. Right? If you have seen him, you actually have seen the Father. And if you have seen Jesus and you've seen the Father, it means that the work of the Holy Spirit is being accomplished. It's why Jesus is central, church. It's why his gospel, right, his good news, actually drives us as a church. And so when it comes to the economic trinity, how does the work of God the Son actually make a difference? Well, we think it changes everything. That's why we focus on it so much. Is It's the central bullseye of all Christian theology. All Christian theology flows out of the person and work of Christ. In fact, it's Jesus himself, if we're being honest, that really gives us handles to hold on to when it comes to the Trinity. What was there in the past, Jesus brought into the light in fullness when he showed up. So a way to think about this, when it comes to the economic work of the Trinity, there's, there's a couple of ways we could look at this. So let me just give you one way. God the Father chooses and initiates the plan of redemption. That's what we looked at last week. And what's the plan of redemption? The personal work of Christ. So the Father chooses and initiates the plan of redemption. God the Son accomplishes the plan of redemption. That's what we're going to highlight this week. And then next week, we're going to look at God the Holy Spirit applies the accomplished work of God the Son to sinners like you and I. So when we think about the economic trinity, that's a way that you can kind of frame it. The Father chooses, initiates, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. But going back to that centrality of Jesus, if, if we have a, that kind of understanding of the economic trinity, let's think about how important is God the Son to that. Well, if there was no God the Son, there would be no plan of redemption to go forth. Right? There would be no John 3.16, that's what we looked at last week. The Father would have no begotten Son or only Son to actually send into the world to save. Right? And if there was no God the Son who accomplishes the plan of redemption, then the Holy Spirit would have no redemption to apply to us. You see how the centrality of God the Son is? It, it flows out of His work. It doesn't mean that His work is more important than the Father, more important than the Spirit. But it means that there's centrality to the person and work of Christ. Even the Apostle Paul, when talking about the resurrection, he says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, you would still be dead in your sins. Right? There would be no good news without the finished work of God the Son. Right? There would
in Latin. Believed to actually have been either written by the Apostle Paul or, or came quickly among the same time, that the early church actually would have recited these very verses together to teach themselves about the work of God the Son. So let's look at this together then. So look at chapter 2, verse 6, where this hymn really begins. And Paul says, Who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the first thing that Paul wanted the church to understand in regarding the the eternal Son, right, the work of, the whole, of Jesus Christ, is he wanted to highlight that there was divinity with Jesus. That Jesus was not just a mere man that happened to be born, that happened to get on this life path that led to Calvary. That he wasn't just somebody random that just happened to show up and happened to get to the cross. But rather that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. That he is truly God. That he was equal with God the Father in all of eternity. That everything that is God, Jesus is. That language of, when it says that he was in the form of God. It's hard to describe in English. But basically what Paul is getting at is, if there was a silhouette of God, Jesus would have been able to step in front of it and completely match the silhouette of God. That he is God. So in order for us to understand Jesus and his work, we have to start with, who is Jesus? Who has Jesus always been? And that is the eternal Son of God. Because what he does flows out of who he is, church. What he does flows out of who he is. Let me give you a quote by Herman Bovink. He's a a Dutch theologian. He died about 100 years ago. Uh, But right now, they're just now really starting to translate a lot of his works into English. And he says this on the topic. He says, his sonship is not based on his mission. Meaning, Jesus didn't become God the Son when he came to earth. But rather, but his mission is based on his sonship. The reason why Jesus could come is because he is God. He is God. In fact, this is why John, who's the author, not John the Baptist, but John, the author of the Gospel of John, how he actually begins his Gospel. And in case you're not familiar, how John begins his his Gospel is actually beginning at the very beginning of creation. He wants to highlight who Jesus is before he actually came to earth in humanity. Let me show you this. This is starting in John 1.1. Where it says, in the beginning was the Word. In the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Right? That's Trinitarian language. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And then jumping over to verse 14, just to highlight and clarify what, what John's trying to get at, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. So even the apostle John, who was writing to primarily a non-Jewish audience, which I would say is probably most of us in here, when he wanted to write an account of the, the life of Jesus Christ, He knew the best place for him to start, like the Apostle Paul, is to start with Jesus' divinity. Who he is. Who he has always been. That he was with God, but yet he was God. But yet, this God took on human flesh. Took on humanity. But why? Why would he do that? Well, look at verse 6 again in Philippians 2. It says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So even though he was fully God, right, before anything ever was, he was God the Son in all of eternity, and he had this rightful place at the throne of God. Yet, Jesus decided not to stay there. He decided to step off his throne and come down into the earth. And why is that? Because it was in accordance with the plan of God. right? With the covenant of redemption. We've talked about this the last couple weeks. This covenant of redemption that the Trinity, that the God had before the creation of the world, decided that they were going to save a human race of sinners like you and I, that they were going to save a people who could not save themselves. And the only way to do that was if Jesus came. And so he knew that he had his, this Godhead, but he didn't consider it something to be grasped, meaning that he could have stayed in heaven, but he decided not to. And he decided to make himself nothing or empty himself by becoming the form of a servant, the text says. Now we have to be really careful there. Really careful with the language there. When Paul is saying that he emptied himself, or when maybe your translation says that he became nothing by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, it's not saying that when Jesus came into this world that he laid his divinity aside. Right? It's not saying that Jesus gave up his divinity in order to become fully human. What the text is trying to communicate is not that Jesus laid that divinity aside, but he took on humanity. He took, added this, this human nature to his divine nature. So now this person, which we know as Jesus Christ, has two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. But yet those, those natures are not in competition to one another. It's not that one is winning and the other one is subservient. Theologians, here's your, here's your fancy word for the day, right? It's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. That Jesus can have two natures. One of humanity and one of divinity. And they are a perfect not blend, it's not like they're, they're kind of confusing one another, but they're in perfect harmony with one another. They have unionized together. It's the hypostatic 
union between the Godhood and his humanity. Okay, it's really important. If you go in any direction, you're entering into um, basically non-Trinitarian thought. And almost every creed right, that we recite around here is trying to put into words that reality. That's why we, that's why we recite important creeds. is because it reminds us that this is an important doctrine to get right. But let's talk about Jesus' humanity. Because that's the economy, that's the work that we see of God in his creation. So Jesus was truly human, meaning that Jesus experienced every human emotion that you and I can experience. We can, he experienced pain, he experienced suffering, he experienced betrayal, he experienced joy. Right? He felt it all. He was truly and fully human. It's why... Jesus taking on humanity was an act of humility. He didn't gain by taking on humanity. I know we think that we're pretty cool stuff as humans, right? But according to the eternalness of God, taking on humanity wasn't an upgrade, right? It was an act of humility to take on us. But why did he do that? We have to always ask ourselves, why did he do that? Right? We ask ourselves that every Christmas season. Why are we celebrating the birth of Christ? Because we're celebrating the plan of redemption moving forward. But I want to focus on the humanity of Jesus a little bit more. Because what he did with his life, what he did with his humanness, really, really matters for us. Even Paul goes on to say in verse 8, if you look down at Philippians 2, it says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Meaning that his obedience in this life, in his humanity, was not just about the cross. It's a part of it, but it's not the totality of why Jesus came. Another way to think about that would be, have you ever thought the reason that Jesus didn't just show up on Good Friday and went to the cross? Right? He didn't just show up right, as a, like a, a 33-year-old man and went and died on the cross and went back. But rather, he showed up as an infant, right? like you and I do. you ever thought about that? Why, why would God, if, if the most important thing for us is only that our sins would be atoned for on the cross, why didn't Jesus just show up on Good Friday then? Why did he show up all those years before? Well, because Paul is saying is that within the plan of redemption, we not only needed the atonement of our sin, right, by a, a substitutionary sacrifice on a Roman cross, we needed that, but we also needed a perfect life lived, a righteous life that had been lived. Now, I've been banging this drum for years, church. It's called the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience is talking about like the death of the cross. Like Jesus, in a passive way, received right, the wrath of God, the punishment of sins. It was received upon him. But the active obedience of Christ is what did Jesus do with his life? How did he pursue righteousness? That was just as needed as his death. 
And every single one of us knows this at some level. Because we know that if we're looking at our life, there's no way we could say it's perfect. Right? There's no way that we can say that it's been righteous from day one, from the moment that we came into the world, that we have been perfectly obeying the law of God in every respect. We know that. I think we all know that. But yet, somehow, we convince ourselves at some point in our life that it's not about perfection, but it's about just being good enough. Or maybe just being better than your neighbor or being better than the person on TV. And we forget. No, heaven is holy. God is holy. Meaning, he can't be in the presence of sin. It's not you being better than just another sinner. It's comparing yourself to a holy and perfect God. If that's the case, then, we don't just need right, a new start. We don't just need someone to atone for our sins, but we need to somehow be able to present a life to God the Father and say, this is perfect. And we can't in ourselves. Right? God did not just save us and wipe like the clay clean and say, okay, now that I've saved you, right? now that you're a Christian, as long as you just get it all right from here on out, you'll be fine. Right? Okay, this is a safe place, right? Church is a safe place. Every single one of us has, even after we've become a Christian, we've done what? We've sinned, right? We have still turned our back on God. We have still failed to adhere to a holy law. And some of us are exhausted because yet, even though we know Christ and we know the work he's done, we've still been trying to pursue this righteous life in order to get salvation from God. That somehow we have convinced ourselves that, yes, we know that Jesus died for our sins, but it's still up to us to finish the race. It's still up to me to do something that God would say is worthy of his salvation and his choosing of me. We do that. We do that in all kinds of ways. And maybe you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't describe it like that. Right? You wouldn't say, oh, I'm, I'm doing this in order to present myself perfect to God. Maybe you wouldn't say it that way, but how often are you trying to do things in order to give yourself some kind of confidence that God will see you fit for the salvation which he's given to you? I think it's a trap we, we can always fall back into. Much of the New Testament letters, church, you think of the letter of the Galatians or the Ephesians or even this letter in, in Philippians, Paul is writing to Christians. And he's trying to remind them that you have been saved. That Jesus has lived the life that you could not live. And so not only did he go to the cross, but he lived a perfect life before that. And so on the cross, there was a double imputation. Imputation meaning that Jesus took on our sinfulness at the cross. And then, but then the double part is not just that. But then he actually gave us his perfect life. So when God the Father sees us, he sees the life of Christ. That's what we need. We don't just need to try to present ourselves, even ask after a Christian, going, I hope it's good enough. 
The bar is Jesus. And yet, Jesus gives us his life. It's that active obedience of Christ. Jesus gave us, church, what we were desperate for but can never achieve. And so when Jesus, from the time he was born all the way up to the cross, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He was obedient to the totality of God's law. Every jot and tittle, it says. He fulfilled every single piece. Because what the law of God is, is it's a reflection of the character of who God is. It's a reflection of what a perfect world is. It's not a way for you to climb yourself to God. It actually is more of a mirror to show you that you can't. And they go, but what do I do now? Well, that's why the Father sent the Son, so you could see Him. But the act of obedience of Christ, church, is reminding us that even though we have failed to obey the law of God, there's one person who hasn't. Or who has, rather. And that's Jesus. And so the active obedience, that he was obedient even to the point of death, is a reminder that our hope is in his life, his perfect life. He took our sin, we got his perfect life. And now if you would consider yourself a Christian, right, if you have believed in that finished work of Christ, it says that your life is now hidden in that. It's hidden in there. That you don't have to worry anymore. Does God love me? Well, does God love the Son? Yeah. And if you're in the Son, that means that you will get everything in which the Son has achieved on your behalf. And now, so, so then what's the point of the rest of our life? Well, the point of the rest of our life is then to respond to that. Not in order to get something from God, but respond, right, with pursuing Him because we have everything in Him. It doesn't say that, okay, that means we don't, it doesn't matter what we do anymore. No, it matters because it reflects what you know and believe. It's a response to what you believe about the person and work of Christ. That's what your life is now for, Christian. But because of this work of Jesus, Paul highlights this, the beauty that comes with that. Look back at Philippians 2. Look at verse 10. Where Paul says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God has highly exalted him. And why is that? Because God the Son accomplished the plan of redemption set forth by God the Father. He did it. He did it. And because of that, because He's the only one who did it, because of that, His name is now above every name. Every name. Right? It's the work of God. It changes everything, church. And hang with me. Here's why I think this is really important for us to understand this morning. It means, then, that Christianity, right, being a follower of Christ, means that it's not a set of moral principles that you adhere to that makes you a Christian. 
It's not even the primary reason you're a Christian. It's not a philosophy of life to adhere to that makes you a Christian. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not adhering to a set of moral principles or adhering to a philosophy of life. But rather, Christianity can be summed up in what do you think about Jesus? It's all about him. Do you remember in the Gospels, and there's a couple of places that says this, but particularly in the book of Matthew, when Jesus is with his disciples in this region named Caesarea Philippi, and he's been, having, he's been doing ministry, and he's been uh, healing you know, people with leprosy, and he's been announcing that he came to seek and save the lost, and he's having this discussion with his disciples. Do you remember the one question that Jesus asked his disciples after a long day of ministry? He says, who do you say that I am? Because that's the most important question we could ever ask ourselves. Is when it comes to Jesus, who do you say that he is? A good model? Maybe someone who is proposing a a good set of moral principles? Or is he the God-man? Right? Is he the Christ, the Messiah? That's what we have to answer every single one of us. Unlike any other, pretty much every other world religion. Right? Jesus is not the first confessor or subscriber of a religion or a set of rules. Right? It's not that Jesus was just the first one to announce, do this. I think God's going to be happy with this. Many religions are based on that. Is what, it's just the first person saying, do this. But rather, Christianity highlights that before anything happened, before there was any creation, there was the God-man who knew all and was all, and he became one of us. He became one of us and accomplished that plan of redemption. And, he, and by doing so, he actually ushered in all what we can know about God, right? All of that kingdom language we talked about previously, both in heaven and on earth. It's always been about him. It's always central to who do you say that Jesus is? It makes all the difference in the world. I know you're ready for it, but here's another Dutch theologian, Herman Bovink, quoting for us again, okay? He says this. I find this just an amazing quote. He says, Without his name, person, and work, there is no such thing as Christianity. In one word, Christ is not, is not the one who points to Christianity, but the way itself. It's summed up in him. It's summed up in who he is and what he has done. And I would add, it's not that Christianity is just a way, but it's the way. It's the way. It's why our text says that every knee will bow one day. Do you know what that word every means in Greek? It means every. Every single knee. Not just Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that every, every person will be saved. Listen, I pray. I pray that right now every single one of us would confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and Savior, as the Lord who was obedient on our behalf, who not only died the death that we deserved, but also lived the life that we could not live, his act of obedience. That's available right now, church.
to be able to call him Lord and Savior. It's why we're going to do baptisms here shortly. Right? Where, where those who are getting baptized are going to publicly declare that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. And in doing so, they're, they're identifying with that person and work of Christ. They're identifying that he lived a life that they couldn't live and died a death they deserve. So when they go under the water, they're identifying with the death of Christ. That his death on the cross counted for them. And then when they're raised out of the water, they're saying, but I have newness of life in Christ in the same way that Jesus Christ was risen from the grave. They can do that because they're confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're bowing that knee right now. But there is coming a day, according to this text, when every knee will bow. But in that day, that final day, when every knee will bow, not everyone will be able to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. It will just be Lord and Judge. The saving will be done. It will be finished. And the only thing left for, for God to grant to sinners is the rightful judgment for their sins. That's why we do what we do, church. It's not that we're trying to be exclusive. It's not that we're trying to say that we're smarter than anybody else. It's not that we're trying to say that we know better. What we're saying, but what the Word of God says is that every knee will bow. He is the only way. And so we pray. Maybe if you're not quite sure where you're at today, or you say that, I've never, I've never bowed my knee to Christ as Lord and Savior. I would say, do it today. Tomorrow's not promised. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ today. Today. The second person of the Trinity took the work, the plan of God the Father and sent his Son to live and to die and to rise and that you can trust in him now. Right now. And everything which Jesus earned on behalf of people like you and I is available. It's available to you. Church, the work of God the Son is such a delight. And we'll highlight it right every single Sunday because it's worthy of it. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of it every single day. That I don't worship Jesus because he was a good teacher. I don't worship Jesus because he happened to live a very religious life. I worship Christ because of what he has done. And not just what he has done, but who he is. So let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, as we just conclude our time in your word this morning, I want to just thank you for your work, Jesus. For the work that you did on behalf of sinners, that you lived the life I couldn't live. You adhered to all of the law of God. Everything in which is required for salvation, you accomplished. And not only you accomplished, but you gave. You gave it to me.
You traded it for my sin. 